All right, good evening and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight is February 7th, 2023. I want to thank you all for coming. On our class tonight will be a presentation by the Peace and Solidarity Commission on the Multipolar World. You know, this is going to be a two-part class. Um, it's divided into a few different sections. So we'll first have a little introduction and then we're going to go into Europe, developments in Europe and then East Asia. All right. Uh, thank you, comrade. I'd like to welcome everyone to this uh, educational meeting tonight. Uh, a lot of us in the Peace and Solidarity Commission have been doing a lot of work on this, and we're excited to present it to you. We're going to be talking about how the world's shifting, how it's going from just a single superpower in the U.S. to a more multipolar world where there's alliances such as BRICS, where they work together and uh, combat the hegemony of the U.S. dollar. There's multiple non-Western multinational organizations dominating international affairs. BRICS, as I mentioned, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and the Eurasia Economic Union. China has uh, been doing their Belt and Road Initiative, uh, expanding infrastructure throughout Africa, the Middle East, and the rest of the globe. There's also ALBA. It's a translation from Spanish. So in English, it's a little bit different. It's the Bolivarian Alliance for the Peoples of Our America. It was founded by Cuba and Venezuela in 2004. And this is BRICS. It's comprised of Brazil, India, China, Russia, and South Africa. It would be the largest, most powerful group that's trying to work to to hold the U.S. accountable and give other countries options. For BRICS, it's comprised of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, as I mentioned. It spans four continents, 26% of the world land surface, and 41% of the world population. So we can see that there's quite a bit that of the countries in our population in the world that reside in these areas and, and use this to get their own economic freedom. The BRICS payment system has been in development since 2015 as an alternative to SWIFT, an international banking uh, organization where Russia, for example, their banks are banned from these types of payments. Twelve countries seek membership, including Argentina, Iran, Algeria, Saudi Arabia. The U.S. has declined all BRICS currencies in 2022. And then we also have the Shanghai Cooperation Organization membership, where you can see that a large portion of Asia is involved with this, including parts of Eastern Europe, another really big group that, that works to battle U.S. hegemony. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization includes nearly all of Asia, plus parts of Eastern Europe. Three and a half billion people are represented. It unites 20 states with five more applying, China, Russia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan formed the Shanghai Five in 1996. It was China and five former Soviet states. Uzbekistan joined to form the SCO in 2001, India and Pakistan joined in 2017. Iran and Belarus are currently applying. Uh, Moscow's alternative to the SWIFT payment system is offered to 18 members and partners of the SCO in a bid to exclude the U.S. dollar and the euro and boost settlements in national currencies. 
In order to ensure uninterrupted cooperation between our banks, we suggest that members of the organization join the Russian financial messaging system. The Economic Development Minister Maxim Roshetnikov said this in an address to the SCO. BRICS and the SCO show that an alternative world order is coming to be. BRICS needs to call for an international conference to form a new monetary system to replace the Bretton Woods system. All right, looks like that's the end of the first section. So we'll go ahead and take the hands that we have now. Uh, just a small correction, the Bretton Woods system stopped in 1971 with the advent of the fiat currency system, although it did leave in wake a number of institutions that uphold imperialism, such as the IMF and World Bank. Yeah, another, uh, in my opinion, plebeian question, would we say that sort of the capitalistic world pushed these countries to go brick, or is it kind of they just didn't like the SWIFT model and went out of their way to make a secondary model, or is there some interconnection, if anybody knows? Thank you. I would say that, it, from my understanding, was done out of necessity, where Russia right now, for example, they're banned from SWIFT payments in their banks, where it's impossible to do anything in today's world if your banks can't make payments with other countries. Yeah, I think this is a very important development. Uh, since 1991, it's been a, a unipolar world. U.S. imperialism has gotten away with murder, literally murder. This is not a socialist world that we had before, but is an anti-capitalist development, which is good. Eventually, from that development, we'll develop socialist world again. I mean, that is obvious. Um, you can't hold back the future, and that is the future. So I think this is a thing that we should understand and push encourage and not accept the views of the ultra left which on this issue also are disunifying everything they say oh there's no difference um it's one imperialism and the other you know let's sit on the fence say plague on both your houses that is very dangerous that will just help the continuation of u.s imperialism in a unipolar world thank you i just wanted to uh like tie this to the current conflict in Ukraine, like we're getting closer and closer to a world in uh, where the main battle is economic systems. You know, that's that's what I kind of see, but that's all. Thank you, Comrade. I'm really happy that we are doing this class because um, this is a topic, big topic of interest for me as well. Um, and, and there's a lot of developments that are going on. Um, things are moving very, very quickly. Just last week, I believe that China and Argentina said that they would begin trading with the yuan, as well as Brazil and Argentina are now working on developing a common currency between the two. And I think just two days ago, Russia are also working on a common currency between, no, 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 I, I apologize. Russia and Iran are working on a common currency between the two. So, you know, this has been kind of uh, in the works for quite a while now, but um, the strides that are being made are just in such a short amount of time are enormous. So it's it's very exciting time. Thank you, comrades. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, um, I just wanted to speak on um, kind of how I view this topic as well. 
um, and kind of the transition into a multipolar world. Um, so if you remember back in 2015, in the case of Iran, um, the U.S. had a lot more bargaining power with Iran than it did. Um, and that's kind of, you know, what led to the deal being signed between the Obama administration and the administration of Hassan Rouhani. But it's interesting because that was where it, that was a point in time where the world was, I still think, unipolar and it wasn't quite making the transition yet. But now what we view as kind of the transition to a multipolarity world, it's kind of where the U.S. doesn't have the same um, like can't keep countries under their thumb as much anymore. And I kind of see this with Iran. I mean, Iran is kind of like in a position where it can do more and the U.S. just can't keep it under its thumb. And that's kind of the way in which I view the transition towards multipolarity, which is kind of interesting. You see countries freeing up and kind of going in their own direction and doing their own thing and charting their own path. Whereas, you know, close to 10 years ago, you wouldn't think that, oh, this is something that somebody could do. So, Yes, I wanted to just ask sort of a general question about multipolarity. And this might be something we get into later in the class, but I just want to ask it. I know that multipolarity means basically multi, more than one power center across the globe is like the essence of the term. Does that mean equality between the East and the West as far as either one is essentially neither one has more power than the other? And is this a transition to basically, is this a transitionary phase to something that might happen next where the East ends up becoming the more dominant power? That might be a big question, but what anybody can give me, I'll appreciate. Thank you. Yeah, uh, this is the general secretary. That's exactly what I was saying. That's exactly my point. This is not going to stop here. It's going to evolve, constantly evolve into something else. Eventually, it's going to go back where socialism is on the agenda. Everybody should watch Russia. Watch the next elections in Russia. See how the communists do in Russia. They're going to do much better than they did before. And the Putin administration is not going to attack it like the way it did before. Because they need the communists who are pushing for the fight against fascism in the Ukraine. So watch the whole dynamics is changing. It's what we call dialectics. Thank you. So your multipolarity, it doesn't necessarily mean equal power. It means that we're no longer in a position where the United States is a global hegemon that can basically dictate terms to anybody and everybody. And yeah, we do expect the situation to evolve rapidly because since the USA can no longer dictate its terms, it can no longer exert the same sort of imperialist exploitation um, to the same degree it has in the past, which is basically what has kept the economy propped up for as long as it has been. So, I know that historically there's been a little bit of conflict between China and India, so I'm just wondering how the relationship plays out between those two countries and BRICS. And then my other question is, has Cuba shown any interest in getting involved in this formation, or is it is there something preventing them from that? Uh, just something that I'm wondering if one of the comrades can answer that. I know for a fact that Cuba is involved with ALBA, 
the Latin American equivalent of BRICS, basically. As far as India and China go, the main contradiction that these two countries deal with has always been U.S. imperialism and Western imperialism in general, I guess, where while they might not always be on the best terms, they can always see the need to work together because they know what happens if they don't have an alliance between each other. They can just be wrecked by the by the West. Yeah, I think you're correct. That analysis makes total sense. The secondary contradiction is what you said between China and India. The primary contradiction is the United States, the West involvement, specifically U.S. Comrade Lenin said it clear. Our job is to fight against first our own country's imperialism. And we are in the belly of imperialism. We have to fight. That has to be our prime objective, to take down U.S. imperialism first. In Germany, the anti-Nazi resistance led by the communists and others, their aim was to take down the Nazi government first. That was their job. They followed Lenin. They were living in Germany. They had to, to bring down the imperialism of their country first. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. Like, is there like two powers in like even or whatever, or does like the socialist one um, start to lead? But multipolarity, I'm thinking multipolarity is like another power rising to dominate the former um, leading power. Just because China is like going to like overtake the US economic, economically doesn't mean it's going to be the new hegemon. <laughs> Multipolarity means there can be like regional powers and stuff like China will have lots of influence within Eurasia, whereas countries, Brazil or whatever, will have their own influence and um, sovereignty within Latin America. There's no like one dominating power. Uh, yeah, uh, I wonder. To- I could read a little quick quote by James Connolly that I think is super relevant to what we're talking about now from World War One, when uh, it was more of a multipolar world um, than before, you know, happened obviously. But it's the German Empire is uh, 1916 from the perspective of uh, Dublin, uh, someone in Dublin, working class person in Dublin, I guess. Uh, the German Empire is a homogenous empire of self-governing peoples. The British Empire is a heterogeneous collection of, in which a very small number of self-governing communities connive at the subjugation by force of a vast number of despotically ruled subject populations. We do not wish to be ruled by either empire, but we certainly believe that the first name contains in germ more of the possibilities of freedom and civilization than the latter. Then you substitute the Russian Federation, um, kind of at a similar point in history. The Russian Federation for the German Empire, I mean. Thank you. So let me go ahead and go to our next part, and that's on Europe. So tonight we're going to be talking about Europe, and I thought it was important to go back. I mean, we could go back decades and decades. So I thought a good starting point would be with Gladio, you know, the the Operation Gladio with the Stay Behind Armies that NATO created. So... Um, that's kind of where we're going to start the your presentation for tonight. Uh, so you can go ahead to the next slide, please. So Operation Gladio. I know we hear about Operation Gladio a lot. It is a term that is very common. Um, but what is Operation Gladio? So formed in 1956, Operation Gladio was the name for clandestine stay-behind armies of fascists that were stationed in NATO countries 
and as well as other countries considered neutral at the time. And some of those countries that were not part of NATO at the time in 1956 would be like Switzerland and Greece. And there were some other countries as well that were that they had stay behind our armies. These were built uh, in the event of what they said was a, quote, Soviet invasion of Western Europe, which, of course, we know never happened. But this would also be used to intimidate and kill members of the left that were projected to win in parliament in Europe. After the counter-revolution in the Soviet Union in 1991, Gladio forces shifted eastward to oppose Russia in particular. So, of course, these stay-behind armies or these forces didn't just evaporate. Once the counter-revolution was done in the Soviet Union, they just pushed uh, eastward to other countries. These armies would then go on to carry out terrorist attacks against civilians, uh, and they would also blame it on the left. So the population would lose confidence in the left as well as look to the current state for greater protection. Uh, yeah, there were many, many uh, instances where there were terrorist attacks, there were bombings that were carried out, and then they would specifically blame it um, you know, on communists or people on the left that were running in parliament at the time. So next slide, please. And next we've got NATO's drive eastward. So on the right, I have a map of the NATO membership countries in Europe, um, and they are colored regarding what decade or at what time they joined NATO. So we can kind of see the progression of countries that went eastward. So West Germany uh, would be the last country to join NATO in 1955, and then that would be up until Spain in 1982. After 1982, we would see that accelerate over the next several decades. Um, after the counter-revolution of the USSR, starting in 1999, there were 14 countries that would join NATO over the next 21 years. Fascist militias from World War II were reactivated when these countries joined NATO. So kind of going back to those Gladio stay-behind armies. Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania all share a border with Russia, as we can see kind of up in the northeast. The only countries separating the rest of NATO from Russia are Belarus and Ukraine. And that, of course, will tie into the present day, as we can see, because, uh, you know, we see all these countries that are bordering Ukraine. We've got Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania. Basically, you know, those countries are, are being held back currently by Ukraine and Belarus as they're not a part of NATO or were, excuse me. NATO's eastward expansion violates the promise made to Gorbachev not to expand past their 1991 border. And yes, as we know, that has that was a lie, and that was broken many, many times uh, ever since that promise was made. Now, the U.S.-backed coup in Ukraine. So this goes over. Now we're coming up to the uh, to the 2014 Euromaidan coup. Um, so the U.S. had a strategic advantage to undermining the government in Ukraine and installing one that was anti-Russian. So the the president at the time before the coup, we do know that they the, there was a lot of pressure being put on them to join the EU. Um, and that was what it kind of eventually kind of sparked a lot of the Euromaidan as well. Uh, Joe Biden and other top U.S. officials were mentioned in a leaked phone call between Victoria Nuland and Jeffrey Pyatt regarding Ukraine and the best way to manipulate the situation. This, if no one's ever watched it, Ukraine on Fire um, is an excellent documentary. 
There is a section in the documentary where they play the leaked audio between Newland and Pyatt, and they are essentially setting Ukraine up. They are picking who they want to be uh, in the leadership of Ukraine at the time. And Newland ends the phone call with saying, F the EU. Next slide, please. So Biden's involvement in Ukraine specifically. So President Joe Biden has personally been involved with the ongoing conflict in Ukraine since at least 2014, along with Hunter Biden. Uh, when his son was to be investigated, he saw to it the Ukrainian prosecutor was fired. Otherwise, the then Obama administration would pull up to a billion dollars in loan guarantees from the Ukrainian president, Petro Poroshenko. Um, and then below is a quote in this. There is video of Biden saying this at the House of Foreign Relations. So he says to the crowd that he's talking to, he says, you're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here. I think it was about six hours. I looked at them and said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor is not fired, you're not getting the money. And that's for the referencing the loan guarantees. So then Biden says, well, the SOB got fired. And again, there's video of him saying this. And they put in place someone who was solid at the time. So we know that Biden has had a, a role, a very personal role in a lot of this ongoing conflict since that time. Uh, so go ahead. Next slide. One issue that we are running into, of course, with the war is that the Democrats are fully supporting the war in Ukraine. And the Democrats have been the most vocally supportive of the proxy war in Ukraine. Many of them, including uh, AOC, Bernie Sanders, and the squad, have voted yes on massive bills to send billions of dollars to Ukraine. And last, I know we are at least over $100 billion sent over to Ukraine. Near the end of October, the Progressive Caucus released a letter urging Biden to seek diplomacy with Russia, which was later retracted and clarified that they still support sending military aid to Ukraine. And there is also video footage of Elon Omar calling those seeking an end to the war dangerous propagandists. So anyone that opposes sending Ukraine funds, that's, as, that's what she has personally called them. And there's also footage of Bernie um, when he's been confronted at rallies. People have called out Bernie for supporting the war, for giving Ukraine money. And the question that he has asked those people in the crowd is, who's paying you? Uh, mass demonstrations. This is something we have now seen for several months across many different countries. I don't even I don't have all of the countries, of course, that we have uh, had anti-NATO demonstrations in. Uh, but the list has been growing, certainly. Uh, many citizens in Europe have protested against the current hold U.S. imperialism has on their countries. Um, so pictured on the right, that is in Prague, the Czech Republic. These demonstrations have criticized their country's involvement in NATO. And Americans, too, are feeling the effects of the U.S. proxy war in Ukraine, as over half the population do not want us funding a war. I believe this is an important slide. So this is Simonenko. This is the, the first secretary of the Communist Party of Ukraine. This was in October 22. There was, I believe, people may have heard of it. There was a meeting of the Communist and Workers' Parties in Havana, Cuba. And this was a quote from a speech that he gave there. So it goes, as we believe, the war of Donbass against the Kiev regime should be considered as national liberation struggle 
in essence, a war for independence from the ruling fascist regime, for the right of the people to speak their native Russian language, and not to follow the anti-Russian course imposed by the United States. Now, this next point, I think, is, is very important. He goes on to say, hence, on the basis of Marxist theory, the military conflict in Ukraine should not be considered as an imperialist war in a literal sense of the word. And moreover, in view of Russia, it is considered as the struggle against an external threat to national security and fascism. We hear a lot of times from people on the left, you know, the, the ultra left as well. People claim that Russia is imperialist for their actions in Ukraine. That would, I believe that is a mistake. Um, we can call those actions self-defense. We can also call, national, like I said, national liberation of the people in the Donbass um, is what that should be considered. Uh, so go ahead to the next slide. And this was a few months ago at this time. So this is Ukraine's attempt to provoke NATO. And we've, of course, had even more escalations since then. On November 15th, a missile landed in Poland, killing two farmers. Ukraine would go on to blame Russia for the attack. While the next day, Poland and the U.S. would admit the missile did not come from Russia. Zelensky would go on to double down and deny the missile came from Ukraine. Uh, the situation caused many NATO countries to call for Article 5, collective defense, but was quickly de-escalated as the truth about the matter came out. So even at that time, the U.S. and Poland were not wanting to go along with the idea that Russia had fired a missile into Poland, killing farmers. Since then, we have had more escalations from Ukraine, of course. And that is it. So that is my presentation on behalf of the Peace and Solidarity Commission on Europe and kind of the ongoing development in the continent. So thank you very much. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, with a little bit of, um, what do you call it, like a joke that's like an ill intent. You know, a coup, an old-fashioned coup, I can kind of understand the logistics. You need to convince a general and his men, and you even have to get all the town. But the balls to just walk in, have a meeting, and to dictate who's going to run your country, that's it. Thank you. On the Article 5 and on NATO's relation to the war in Ukraine, I know that there's been talk of, especially of recently of Ukraine joining NATO even now. And I'm wondering if if Ukraine were to join NATO in the middle of the war, would they be able to provoke Article 5 just because they're already in it? Or is that something that would even prevent them from joining NATO in the first place? I, I've just wondered about that. So to join NATO, you have to get the approval of all the NATO countries. And there are some that would not vote yes to Ukraine joining NATO. That's the big thing. And then secondly, they would just be unable to join it during the conflict. Like they basically would have to join it at a time where there is not conflict, which they have been unable to do since 2014 when they started shelling Donbass. All right. Thank you. That answered my question. And additionally, to add on comment is that uh, these political uh, plays being played between the NATO powers themselves, such as uh, Turkey, uh, playing off both sides between uh, they're basically gambling off of uh, Sweden's membership right now, basically, you know, trying to do their own political plays. And they're basically using the fact that they have a, a voting and a veto card to basically say, we have the ability to uh, deny any country that wants to join NATO to join NATO if they don't want to do our own bidding. 
And as you can probably guess, that also plays into uh, Ukraine's welcoming into NATO as well. But also to add on top of that, there is some speculation that the promise of being entered into NATO and the EU as well is a way of keeping the Zelensky uh, regime basically strung along into thinking that Western aid is coming besides the uh, slow trickle of aid that's just barely enough to keep their uh, lines stable as they enter their uh, eighth mobilization and their uh, massive draw on their manpower that's steadily depleting. In fact, if I recall, they said that they're recruiting up to uh, above 60 years old for their uh, mobilization drive. So, you know, it's a really rough situation over there. And, you know, they're trying to get as much hope as they can to their people, sadly. That's all. I want to say that this is uh, a pretty topical class once again, as uh, I have been doing a project on uh, Operation Gladio and the, uh, particularly the uh, coup that we did in, I'm going to say, uh, 1967 uh, uh, in Italy. You know, the, the th- thought that I just had about the war in Ukraine, like a lot of these regimes we created in the Cold War are also, in some respect, uh, also being dismantled by their participation in the, in the Ukraine conflict. I was going to ask, um, what would we say are like the most like flash potential flashpoints as far as, I know we're talking about economics as well, but I mean, it all ties in as for like a Franz Ferdinand incident to Bark something uh if, if, if they like just allowed ukraine into nato and they would kind of like give up control legally wouldn't it to, to have the option to do things so what do we think could be like a potential um kind of spark like that i know there's turkey stuff going on there armenia and azerbaijan and i'm, not, I'm just kind of hazy on the specifics of those more intricate details so there's a lot of things that could potentially be the spark um you know, we have in the, in Asia, we have South Korea against North Korea. You know, we have uh, like a huge Israeli offensive against Palestine. We have continued Israeli shelling of Syria. You know, Azerbaijan is not a NATO member, but a major non-NATO ally. So that's another one. And, you know, they cooperate heavily with the capitalists, especially Turkey. So there's a lot of things that could potentially be like the spark that sets in a new era and you know one thing that we got to consider too is like the other side has to create like some type of warsaw pact to counter this like just that's that's my thought on it thank you comrade and i want to add to that as well that if we remember from you know both world war one and two there were plenty of pre-war conflicts in the what would be called basically the interwar period um, and we've had a long interwar period but we've seen you know, 20 years of conflicts in the Middle East, different conflicts arising in Europe uh, and East Asia. Uh, and I'm sure that this, I'm sure that the Peace and Solidarity's presentation will get to these different things as we go about it. But really, you know, I don't know that there's going to be one conflict that is the spark of it all. Uh, World War II really became kind of what we consider to be having, it having started once Germany invaded Poland and declarations of war went. And I'm not sure if declarations of war are even a thing that that would happen anymore other than if Article 5 was provoked. So it's just a, a really tense situation. 
Don't think that what happened, the disaster, the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria is not part of this whole thing. The first country that always sends aid has been the United States. And that's going to make Turkey think and the people of Turkey think three times before they oppose any country coming into NATO. They're going to say, who helped us? And I'm telling you, that's part of this whole picture. That's why this happened at this particular time is important. Of course, nature didn't make it happen, but that's going to be taken into consideration when people think about the Turkish government. That's all. Thank you, comrade. And in the chat, I got a message to mention Kosovo versus Serbia is another uh, possible conflict. And I also wanted to mention as well, because we brought up the, the squad and different progressives and the Democrats supporting the war in Ukraine. One thing to note about Bernie Sanders in particular is you can actually find a video from him in the late 1990s rallying for the war Kosovo and then the, the former Yugoslavia. So he's had a history of standing in support of different wars. And really, too, I want to say that it's not just the Democrat Party. I mean, there's varying degrees of support or non-support for NATO when it comes to the Republicans, but every administration since Obama has sent military aid to Ukraine, and that includes the Trump administration. And a lot of Republicans are supportive of Ukraine, Then there are some Republicans that aren't. Truthfully, I don't think that it's because they're against U.S. imperialism. I think that it's because of whatever their own interests may be. But both of the bourgeois parties are very involved in this, and I just wanted to make that statement. Yes, and to also add on as well, a lot of the conflicts that have been happening around the world, well, it basically kind of revolves around trying to figure out the little uh, needle points that they can figure out to try and figure out, you know, weak points in the uh, various alliances that have been forming in the uh, uh, multipolar world, such as how uh, Israel recently launched an attack on uh, one of the Iranian uh, facilities, uh, how they've been shelling Syria, as others have mentioned how uh, the U.S. has been trying to very humorously enough uh, blame China for sending spy balloons over, but generally trying to create environments where they can breathe that jingoistic fear in the United States to actually, you know, justify their own, uh, you know, policies against countries and escalate even further. But ultimately, it would be very hard to say what would cause a France Ferdinand moment, because as it's weird to say, even though the a bunch of, uh, I hate to use the word, but a complete bunch of uh, wackos in the White House. There's at least enough people around the world that understand plunging into another world war would quite literally bring us back into fighting World War Four with uh, sticks and stones, as uh, Einstein put it. And so hopefully calmer heads across the world will prevail, even if they keep getting a, you know, needled in the back or needled in the side from all of the weird possibilities that U.S. can throw out to them. Thank you, comrade. And I want to add as well, another instance of needling towards a conflict like World War III was actually as well in the Trump administration in early 2020, if comrades remember, uh, Iranian General Qasem Soleimani was basically lured into Iraq with the help of Saudi Arabia, uh, which is a country that we've given a lot of military aid to in their genocide in Yemen. And we took him out unilaterally in a drone strike and also killed a child with him. And that was a point in time that almost brought us to war. And that, if you remember as well, that was a time that 
almost every day there was some sort of thing about, oh, an Iranian-backed militia attacked this facility. Oh, there's spies here that are Iranian. There's this sort of warship is, is going against this other warship. It was one of those times where you could see that the United States was trying to needle a conflict on, and that's happening in a lot of different places around the world. Uh, yeah, I wanted to kind of piggyback on what you said about how we think of when World War II started. I mean, we it, were kind of trained to uh, not remember Spain um, when it was the Spanish Civil War, um, and the Soviets were the only ones who didn't abandon Spanish democracy. And then uh, as far as like conflicts leading up to like Libya, what was the actions against Libya were in response to Libya pivoting towards the east. And um, that was against, it was the head of the African Union, the most powerful economic power there and everything. Gaddafi had a lot of friends around the world too. So, uh, and people saw what happened there. So I think things are better, I think better, better prospects in the big picture than uh, they are, might look in the core right now. But um, also uh, the Syrian, remember when uh, Obama tried to do, do the red line in Syria thing. And I'm pretty sure that was like a false flag type thing when they tried to uh, use Syrian weapons, chemical weapons attacks, supposedly, to uh, stage an invasion. And then I think that's when Putin moved in or the Russians moved in to back them up. I'm not sure, but that was like, seemed to be an attempt for like a transfer and end moment. Russia has learned a very difficult lesson because Russia was neutral during Libya and Libya got destroyed. And it's still an open air slave market in some parts. And there's two or three competing governments now, et cetera. Um, and so Russia is not neutral in Syria and Syria still stands despite all of the U.S. led destruction. And, you know, Russia still stands and Eastern Europe has not been, you know, completely taken over by Banderites yet. So, uh, you know, there's there, we have a lot to be hopeful for despite all the all the struggle. All right. Thank you, comrade. And before we go to the next presentation, I also want to mention that there was a really great article that was in the Communist 2022. It's the first article you read, and we just put up a narration of it. That's from the Russian Communist Workers Party that explains why it's justifiable to fight that war in Ukraine. And they bring up as well the war in Syria and how, you know, Bashar al-Assad, not the best player in the world, but against U.S. imperialism and fighting the uh, religious fascistic extremists like ISIS and defending the Assad regime was actually justifiable as well. So I'll go ahead and share my screen to go to our last presentation for tonight. Okay, thank you. The uh, last section for tonight is going to be on East Asia. And for the first section, we will be uh, talking about developments in China, People's Republic of China. So the major flashpoint at the moment is Taiwan. And despite nominally being recognized under the one China policy, the U.S. has long supported Taiwan separatist elements. If you look back in history, uh, we even got to the point of considering using nuclear weapons against China during the 1958 Taiwan Strait crisis. And recently, the tensions have only escalated. Uh, the U.S. has sold billions of dollars worth of weapons to Taiwan. And the number of American military personnel in Taiwan nearly doubled in 2021 as American warships continue to pass through the Taiwan Strait. It's a pretty big deal. Last year, we had Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, recent trip to Taiwan. And uh, that was provocation, which has only worsened things since then. We're at the point now where American think tanks like the American Enterprise Institute are now calling for providing nuclear weapons to Taiwan as a nuclear deterrent. And so the reason 
USA is so focused on Taiwan is it is really essential for a lot of the infrastructure that we have, uh, namely with technology. Um, Taiwan is a major producer of semiconductors, which have been referred to as the petroleum of our current digital age. And here's just a little video on uh, how people in Taiwan were reacting to the visit from Nancy Pelosi. That gives you a picture. Um, you know, a lot of people in Taiwan understood what the Pelosi visit meant, and they're very much opposed to it. This is really about the U.S. recognizing its decline, while at the same time China is rising, and they're doing everything they can to attempt to halt that rise of China while they still can. For example, in October, October of 2022, the Biden administration blocked China from importing semiconductors. As I mentioned before, Taiwan controls a major portion of the global semiconductor industry, um, which is a big reason why the U.S. is trying to drive a wedge between it and mainland China. And so, you know, it's unfortunate since it happened so recently, it wasn't incorporated uh, with the balloon from China, um, which they believe was just a weather balloon. And it was actually shot down. Uh, you know, the Western media takes any opportunity it can to attempt to manufacture consent for, you know, aggression against China and possibly even future war against China. Uh, one of the most famous examples recently has been the narrative of the quote unquote Uyghur genocide in Xinjiang. And so that has basically been the misinformation that the Uyghurs who reside primarily in Xinjiang province have been rounded up into concentration camps. And it's um, there's this whole narrative about Han supremacy, the idea that the Han Chinese are considered above you know, other nationalities within China, and that it is an actual act of genocide being perpetrated by China. And so you see a lot of news sources reporting on it lately. And generally, from the investigation I've been able to make, I've always seen it go back to one of two sources. The first one being Radio Free Asia, uh, which is associated with the National Endowment for Democracy, which is basically a front for the CIA. And Radio Free Asia also gives a lot of misinformation about the DPRK, incidentally. Or the other source was Adrian Zenz who has stated his motivation uh, for what he is spreading is that he believes he is led by God to oppose the Communist Party of China. So that is the sources for this commonly believed narrative of genocide. So the reality is, you know, there are parallels really with what we saw in Afghanistan in the 20th century. Uh, the Muslim Uyghurs have been the target of ongoing attempts at radicalization by anti-China forces, including the U.S., Kind of parallels Operation Gladio as well, which was mentioned earlier. The CPC, Communist Party of China, has been obliged to respond amidst the resulting sharp uptick in acts of terrorism in China. And they've had to implement a program for de-radicalization of these elements, which have been radicalized by you know, Western forces. Uh, so the next slide, there's going to be another video. It has the United States Army Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson he states it quite explicitly why the U.S. has remained in Afghanistan, which borders Xinjiang province. And it will talk a little bit more about um, this sort of radicalization that's going on. This, I, 
We're in Afghanistan as we were in Germany post-World War II. That is for at least a half a century. It has nothing to do with Kabul and state building, nothing to do with fighting the Taliban or proving that we can reconcile with the Taliban, and nothing to do with fighting any terrorist group. It has everything to do with three primary strategic objectives. And I really, as a military officer, as a professional, I don't necessarily object to these objectives, but I believe the American people probably ought to be told about them and there ought to be a debate as to whether or not they want to spend their money on these objectives. First objective is to be in the place that Donald Rumsfeld discovered was the most difficult country in the world to get military power into in 2001, and take my word for it, it is. Look at it on a map and leave it there because it is the only hard power the United States has that sits proximate to the Central Base Road Initiative of China that runs across Central Asia. If we had to impact that with military power, we are in position to do so in Afghanistan. And second reason we're there is because we're cheek and jowl with the potentially most unstable nuclear stockpile on the face of the earth in Pakistan. We want to be able to leap on that stockpile and stabilize it if necessary. And the third reason we're there is because there are 20 million Uyghurs and they don't like Han Chinese in Xinjiang province in western China. And if the CIA has to mount an operation using those Uyghurs, as Erdogan has done in Turkey against Assad, there are 20,000 of them in Idlib, in Idlib in Syria right now, for example. That's why the Chinese might be deploying military forces to Syria in the very near future to take care of those Uyghurs that Erdogan invited in. Well, the CIA would want to destabilize China, and that would be the best way to do it. Yeah, so... He says it all, you know, as you see, it's not a anti-imperialist source at all. It's you see on the podium, it says Ron Paul Institute, and this is a colonel. So, but yeah, he just says it all. He makes it very clear what the plan is. You know, it's good if you look outside of the USA, there's a bit more um, pushback on the narrative. Uh, recently, the UN Human Rights Council actually rejected a motion to afford a debate on the idea of a Uyghur genocide. So this is a rare occurrence, actually. The motion is only the second motion to be rejected outright in the entire history of UN Human Rights Council. So it's being seen just how ridiculous and paper thin any sort of evidence is for this sort of narrative. Okay, so that is the first section on People's Republic of China. The next section will be on the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Of course, the primary conflict there is with South Korea. Uh, recently, the DPRK has come under fire yet again in the Western media for their nuclear tests and their missile launches. Uh, what is not mentioned, the imperialist aggressions have necessitated the DPRK's nuclear deterrence. As been mentioned before, with example of Libya, uh, you see what happens when that nuclear deterrent isn't there. You know, the uh, tensions have been escalating recently. Uh, in October of 2022, the U.S. and South Korea conducted the largest joint air drill in history, which has been termed Operation Vigilant Storm. This operation emerged after a series of escalations to military activity in occupied South Korea, which also included the Olji Freedom Shield, uh, field mobile drills, as well as large-scale joint naval exercises. Next slide. And at this point, it has gone so far for the forces of occupied Korea 
to be openly talking about practicing a preemptive strike against the DPRK. And these actions, of course, have been sharply condemned by the foreign ministry of the DPRK, and they have made it clear um, where we are at in this conflict. It says the U.S. nuclear war scenario against the DPRK has entered the final stage. Next slide. And uh, again, it's another recent development, which unfortunately didn't make it in. Um, but the DPRK has recently resolved. I don't know if they actually made it out there, but they're sending personnel to the Donbass. Um, so they have made it very clear where they stand on that conflict. And, you know, they understand the reality of the multipolar world. But the uh, next section is going to be on India. And what we see in India is, you know, ever since the counter-revolution in the Soviet Union, there has really been free reign for, you know, multinational corporations to plunder with privatization and neoliberal economic policies um, accelerating ever since 1991. And the impact on the Indian peasantry has been particularly severe. And within the last 15 years, hundreds of thousands of peasants have been committing suicide. There's actually basically an epidemic of uh, deaths of despair among the Indian peasantry because they're at the point where they can no longer make a living because they can't compete with these multinational corporations and these monopolies. Uh, next slide. So recently, the, you know, the major development uh, regarding these privatizations and these monopolies has been the three black farm laws, they've been called. And these have been enacted by the ruling Hindu Nationalist Party, the BJP, under Narendra Modi. And these have pushed the agricultural sector deeper into neoliberalism. They've removed price controls on crops. Uh, they've facilitated private monopoly control of the agricultural market. And any sort of state interventions, any sort of protections from the state, protecting the livelihood of the Indian peasantry, they've sought to erode them away in favor of the so-called free market. The good news is within the last couple of years, there has been a peasant movement, which has been unprecedented in scale in human history in terms of its size. And there's really been a flourishing of what you could call class consciousness uh, among the Indian peasantry and the allied workers. And the protests, as has been said, are unprecedented in scale, primarily against these three black farm laws. One central organization, which has been central in organizing these protests, has been the All India Kisan Ket Mazdur Sangathan, or the AIKKMS, which is associated with the Socialist Uni Center of India Communist. So, unlike in the United States or you know many other neoliberal countries. There are real solid bases of power for communist elements within India at this point. Despite immense struggle from the BJP government, Modi capitulated in November of 2021, announcing that the three black farm laws would be withdrawn. And so that has been a really a huge victory uh, for the Indian peasant movement and a sign of a shift in power towards the masses, but there's still much work to be done. The class consciousness has flourished in India through the struggle, but the workers and peasants, as with any of these movements, the big question is, can they maintain unity? Just like we have here, can we maintain unity against fascism as capitalism continues to decay? So that's it. Thank you. And then we can go to questions. Thank you, comrade. And I wanted to add a couple of other things that are happening in East Asia that should be of note. Of course, right around 
Korea, and it's also, it plays a role when it comes to China as well. Uh, Japan, which uh, historically since World War II, uh, they've had a self-defense force, but they've been prevented from like fully militarizing like they did prior to World War II. But now in the last year, there's actually been a big push to basically double their military budget and remilitarize again. And Japan is definitely anti-DPRK, anti-People's uh, Republic of China. And there is a rising nationalism there, which corresponds to the old uh, fascist Japan during World War II. Uh, another thing that I wanted to point out is just the different U.S. military bases that surround East Asia, like in, of course, Taiwan, and I believe a couple of other islands in that area, and also the Philippines, I think Thailand, I think that there's a couple more uh, in Southeast Asia of basically just trying to encircle uh, all these countries, try to basically win over them and throw our hegemony over East Asia. So I just wanted to add that in there. It was uh, mentioned, uh, there was a little bit of discussion on um, the Syrian civil war. And I, I thought um, it was important to also note that on top of the Syrian civil war being a breeding ground or a training ground for terrorists in um, Xinjiang, China, there's also terrorist groups like the Chechen separatists in Russia that are training in Syria as well. But in um, back in September, Erdogan, Turkish president or prime minister, I forget what he is, actually stated that he wanted to meet up with President al-Bashar Assad of uh, Syria, which is pretty big, showing it shows that he's looking to, you know, build diplomacy with this country he's been at war with for over a decade now. So I just wanted to say that. Um, how does a think tank like the Ron Paul Institute reconcile with Ron Paul's politics? Uh, I mean, he's pretty fervent against the war machine. I mean, he's speaking at the Rage Against the War Machine uh, rally put on by the Libertarian Party and the People's Party, sponsored by our party, uh, uh, with, uh, along the sides of communists, right? Along sides of people who are also speaking in that rally who are communists against the war machine. So how does this, uh, how does this safe space for imperialists this uh, this think tank reconcile with the actual politics of Ron Paul. I, I'd like to answer that. Yeah, remember the words of Marx. There are contradictions in a lot of things that are going on. There are really contradictions. This is one of them. It's just that simple. Also, dialectically, if someone takes a good position on one thing at one time, it doesn't mean they're necessarily going to take a good position in the future or they did in the past on the same issue even or a different issue that's all part of dialectics nothing stays the same Na nature everything is changing straight marks thank you uh speaking of korea uh, i just remember a article i read from kcna and it was about a recent visit by um by the Secretary General to South Korea and Japan, and was talking about how uh, how NATO is seeking expansion in the Asia Pacific. All right, thank you, comrade. All right, it's um 
It's also worth noting the ongoing conflicts that have been going on in the Horn of Africa, especially uh, surrounding Eritrea and Ethiopia and Somalia. And then uh, not too far away from there, all the conflicts, you know, with a lot of U.S. involvement, especially in Somalia, where there's a lot of news coming out that the CIA was probably funding al-Shabaab there, which is just the kind of that ongoing pattern of um, how the USA tries to wedge itself in different parts of the world using extremists. And that's all. Thank you, comrade. One thing I wanted to ask about real quick before we end up having to hang up tonight, and I'll still get to the other hands that are up as well, is how does the countries of Vietnam and Laos play into the current situation in Southeast Asia? I know that Vietnam has had a rough history with China, to say the least, Laos as well. So I'm just wondering where they play into that. So both of the countries have been... um kind of building stronger economic ties since 1991 with different kind of relationships, you know, coming and going. But recently, Laos is really involved with the Belt and Road Initiative of China. All right. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess originally I was going to ask regarding India, the next lights are still there or a thing or, or a factor at all and how they would play in between the Indian state and uh, China. And then I also wanted to comment on, uh, I guess, more general as far as the uh, kind of ins and outs of uh, these aren't just uh, like the countries aren't just unified entities necessarily. The, there's competing interests with each group too. Like uh, in the case of like uh, the U.S. military, um, like 30 to 40 percent of the leadership is Irish American, and the majority of all U.S. casualties from all of U.S. wars have been Irish. And the events in like uh, progress has been made in Ireland as far as uh, removing the British and, and uh, establishing a free and independent Ireland over there, uh, like the organization Oglina Heron, the IRA, always has more members in America or Australia or England than it does in Ireland. And um, that is like riddled up and down the U.S. military. So that's a reason for hope in my point of view, at least. Their biggest friend in their entire history was Muammar Gaddafi as well. And they were attacked in the same way concurrently in the 70s as uh, AIM and uh, the Black Panther Party was in America by COINTELPRO type programs, uh, they won because, can't say they won yet, but you know, they survived and are flourishing because of the health of the cops. And uh, they saw what happened too. They may not have let people know about it yet, but they definitely saw what happened there. Yeah, really good class. The last thing I kind of wanted to say on a lot of these conflicts that we're seeing go all throughout the world is that there is a lot of ethnic tension just historic ethnic tensions in a lot of these conflicts we see play out, whether it's Azerbaijan and Armenia, or it's, you know, Turkey and Kurdistan, or in Syria, or whatever, or the Syrian civil war, even. I mean, a lot of this stuff is based on the ethnic diversity of the, and the ethnic makeup in these countries. And uh, the U.S. empire plays off of those ethnic tensions and those religious differences and tensions to further divide countries. And that's kind of what I wanted to say. I feel like we didn't touch on that. Uh, thank you, comrades. And the, I think that this was a really great class. I want to thank the Peace and Solidarity Commission for their first part of this presentation. Uh, and like we mentioned, there's going to be another class later this month that I believe they said is going to touch on the Middle East, Latin America. And so we're, of course, excited for that. Comrade General Secretary, would you like to give us any statement before we hang up tonight? 
I wanted to tell everybody, uh, thank you all for coming. I think it was an interesting class. Very, very good because it gave an analysis, a background of where we're going in the future. And as we're talking here, on the TV, there's a circus going on. A love fest, we would call it in the 1960s. Each one is patting each other, one hand behind their back with a knife or a gun, and the other hand, they're kissing each other and shaking hands. It's called the State of the Union. That's what they call it. It's amazing. As you, I have it on mute and I'm reading the words. It's a real joke. It's, a, it's something for the American people. Um, they united on one thing. They just passed a law. In the, um, they passed a resolution in the Congress a few days ago saying that the United States will never be socialist. Can you believe that? They actually said that. Even in the McCarthy period in the 50s, they never said that. So they're desperate. They must be desperate. They know that the clock is coming out and is against them. So the millionaires and uh, everybody in the Congress passed this to make sure that uh, the capital system will stay. Uh, and they're telling the American people this. And yet the whole world is going in a different direction. You know, in the last 15 years, they asked the young people, I don't know what they call them, millennium or whatever, but they asked the young people, what is your view on socialism? And what is your view on communism? Do you know that over 70%, 60 to 70% say they like socialism? They may not know what it is, but they like it. And almost 30, 35% said they like communism. That is interesting. So to fight that, uh, they're trying to change the textbooks in school. In Florida, DeSantis is changing all the textbooks not to, to give a negative, as if they haven't done that anyway. Of course they've done that. Since 1945, they've done that. So I just want to mention that. Thank you for coming tonight. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit.